I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. listening to a special episode of this podcast, the third season of Dreams of Black Wall Street, the current season that you're listening to, was launched on November 10th, 2021, the 123rd anniversary of the 1898 Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat. It's only right that we dedicate an episode of this season's podcast to commemorate the anniversary of the Wilmington massacre as well. First, I want to note that New Hanover County and the city of Wilmington joined several local organizations and partners for a number of events during the month of November to commemorate the massacre, as well as honor the memory of those who were killed in the massacre. Some of those events included a signing by the New Hanover County Board of Commissioners announcing the month of November as 1898 Commemoration Month, a lecture on Wilmington's history, a pastor's breakfast, a talk on race and reconciliation, a ceremony at the 1898 Wilmington Park in Wilmington, displaying soil samples from locations where Black residents were slaughtered. On November 6th, a funeral procession and graveside memorial service was held in memory of the late Joshua Halsey, who was killed during the massacre and coup. According to the New York Times, Halsey was a well-liked Black laborer in his 40s and a father of four girls, whose family at the time had lived in Wilmington for about 100 years. He was also a target of the mob who attacked the Black community. Now, Halsey was reportedly asleep in bed on November 10th when one of his daughters shook him awake. Because he was deaf, he did not hear the gunshots fired by the white mob. Halsey ran out the back door, but the mob caught up with him and shot him 14 times. He was hastily buried in an unmarked grave in a family plot before most of his family fled to New Jersey. Halsey's descendants were in attendance for the event along with state and local leaders. Halsey's gravesite was actually discovered by the Third Person Project, a group founded by John Jeremiah Sullivan, a Guggenheim Fellow and New York Times Magazine writer, Joel Finsel, an author, as well as Trey Morehouse, founder of the Mouths of Babe Theater Company, which is also located in Wilmington. I met John Jeremiah Sullivan and Joel Finsel when I traveled to Wilmington to witness some of the commemorative events myself and do some research of my own in November. Now, they are doing some amazing work at the Third Person Project, which is a documentary research group. In addition to finding Joshua Halsey's grave, one of their other initiatives includes the Daily Record Project, which along with other things, tries to uncover and preserve copies of the record, which was the African-American newspaper run by Alexander Manley, another target of white supremacists during the Wilmington insurrection. The Third Person Project also produces arts and cultural events, and I'm just super impressed by the work that they're doing. Other 1898 Wilmington commemorative events in and around Wilmington included a talk by David Zucchino, the award-winning author of Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898, and The Rise of White Supremacy. You're actually going to hear from Zucchino on this season of the podcast. On November 10th, while I was in Wilmington, I met some wonderful community leaders, researchers, and journalists 
at a state marker installation ceremony, highlighting the bravery and commitment of the Reverend J. Allen Kirk, who actually managed to survive the Wilmington Massacre. In 1897, Reverend Kirk came to Wilmington to pastor Central Baptist Church on Red Cross Street. According to historians, Kirk was an outspoken community leader who also became a target of the white supremacy campaign. In fact, armed white ministers waited outside a church he was preaching in to capture him. He and his family were able to escape and flee North Carolina. Now, Reverend Kirk wrote his account of the Wilmington Massacre, describing scenes of chaos and violence. Had he not done so, it is possible that the truth of the massacre and insurrection may have never been fully understood. I also attended an 1898 commemoration unity service at Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church, where Dr. Benjamin Chavis, a member of the historic Wilmington 10, was the keynote speaker. Now, my father once worked for Dr. Chavis many, many years ago. In 1986, my dad, Larry Ham, traveled with Reverend Ben Chavis throughout the Deep South to retrace the route of the 1960s Freedom Rides. Dr. Chavis, my dad, and busloads of activists also conducted voter registration drives together in Alabama. Now, when I was a little girl, I used to go to Dr. Chavis's house to play with his kids. I wasn't sure if he would remember me, but when I was finally able to get through security following his address in Wilmington, after I mentioned my dad's name, he seemed to remember me and we had a nice chat before he was then rushed off by security. In any case, Dr. Chavis has had a long career in activism. It includes a life-changing experience along with a group of other activists who've come to be known as the Wilmington 10, as I previously mentioned. In 1971, the United Church of Christ sent Dr. Chavis to Wilmington, North Carolina, to help desegregate public schools. A year later, he and the now-famed Wilmington 10 were arrested and falsely convicted of conspiracy and arson. Chavis served nearly a decade in prison. The Wilmington 10 received international attention, and eventually the charges were overturned in 1980. While he was imprisoned, Chavis wrote two books, An American Political Prisoner and Psalms from Prison. Next, you're going to hear parts of the 1898 Commemoration Unity Service at Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church featuring Dr. Benjamin Chavis. You're going to first hear from Reverend Jermaine Armore, the pastor of St. Luke AME Zion Church, who moderated the event. The video and recording are courtesy of New Hanover County. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today because 123 years ago on this day, November 10th, a tragedy happened in the city of Wilmington that not only shook up the streets of Brooklyn, but shook up the streets of the entire nation. So instead of hiding the truth in some cold basement, 
We've decided to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us, God. We've decided not to hold on to the grudges of the past, but to lift up hope and let that pass to everyone with a forgiving heart. And instead of just remembering the hating of that day, we've decided to dream of the healing of today and heal and do it forward together. So therefore, we want to welcome you to the commemoration and remembrance of the 1898 Wilmington Massacre, but today it's a unity program and we will unify together. I'm gonna ask that the Reverend Dr. Terry Henry, pastor of this wonderful illustrious edifice, Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church will come and lead us in our prayer, followed by Deborah Maxwell, who will come President of the new Hanover County NAACP. Thank you. Would you bow your heads in prayer? God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us safe thus far on the way, thou who has kept by thy might. Lead us unto the light. Keep us forever in the path, we pray. Heavenly Father, we approach your throne of mercy tonight with thanksgiving, humility, and grace. Acknowledging that we are kept and sustained by your power. We desire one thing tonight, and that is unity. Unite us, O God. Where we are divided, help us to become one. Where we are hurting, help us to heal. Where we are weak, make us strong. Tonight we come as a city representing different faiths, different races. Yet we come seeking a common thread as we gather in this house of worship. Unite us, O God. In a time when the land we live in is in need of healing. I greet you for this occasion because 123 years ago, this city was fractured. Its arms were broken and bent, and guess what? It was never set right. And that's what we're here today, to reset the bones of this city. Because you can break and get set. You can walk, but it hurts. So we need to reset the pain that has occurred. Because if it doesn't, it doesn't heal. And we have to move forward to remove everything that happened. A hundred. Our greetings today. Our mayor, Bill Sappho, if you would come at this time. And also from... Uh, November the 10th, 1898, is a day that will live in infamy in this community forever. But it's also a day for us to reflect and to come together as a community and as a city. And I know this healing process or this process of the recognition of 1898 
started in the mid-90s when there was a lot of discussions about recognizing what had happened because it was quiet for many years. It was kept quiet. It was kept in a room. It was kept in a basement, as you said, and no one knew about it. And the only way that we can come forward as a community and move forward as a community is to recognize what that event did for this community. It changed the trajectory of Wilmington in many ways forever. But we also have an opportunity today, citizens that here that are here to heal, to come together, to bring unity, to bring equity, to bring inclusion into our community. And I know that every elected person in this community, both in the county and the city. Amen. You may be seated. At this time, we will have a special presentation um, by Linda Raleigh Thompson. I'm excited about this part of the program because I get to make a very special presentation tonight, and hopefully it will be something that becomes an annual event. Tonight we honor a person I've deemed as the mother of the 1898 commemoration movement, Dr. Bertha Boykin Todd. Born in Sampson County into a family of educators, she graduated as the salutatorian of her high school graduating class. After receiving numerous degrees, she was bestowed an honorary doctorate of humanities from the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. The only African-American female to be awarded an honorary doctorate from UNCW to date. Dr. Todd served the New Hanover County School System as a veteran educator and civil rights icon in helping with the integration of public schools in our community. She retired in 1992 as the Director of Staff Development. She co-chaired the 1898 Centennial Foundation from 1995 until 1999. Members consisted of university professors and community citizens. In 2002, she appeared in a nationally televised series regarding the massacre, Fighting Back, 1896 through 1917. For 13 years, she served on the 1898 Memorial Campaign Committee, helping to raise money for the 1898 Memorial Park, now valued at more than a million dollars. She served for 13 years working on that project. In 1984, she received the Order of the Longleaf Pine, presented by Governor James B. Hunt during his first administration. 
This is the highest award given to citizens of the state of North Carolina. When she did not think our children knew enough about 1898, she and her daughter visited our school system and taught all fifth graders what 1898 was all about. She's never resting. She's never comfortable. And if your phone rings and Bertha Todd calls you, you better answer. While New Hanover County pays my salary, I love to tell people I work for Mrs. Bertha Todd. She is an author, a producer of historic documentaries, and has served on numerous boards and commissions. She is our living legend. Can you help me honor Dr. Bertha Boykin Todd this evening? I want to thank those organizers and the participants of this two week long and maybe a month long commemoration. I am humbly, profoundly humble for this type of recognition. 26 years ago in 1995, this small group of community citizens and university professors gathered and talked about this topic because in three or two years, there would be 100 years since this massacre and successful coup d'etat. And we wanted to bring it out of the closet. We wanted to heal a wound. As I told many individuals when I was accompanied by Dr. Bolton Anthony, Dr. Jim McGivern, Dr. Melton McLaurin, Dr. Tom Smith, going around southeastern North Carolina and especially New Hanover County, talking about a wound that needed to be healed. Many of us know about Lansing, a wound. This was a wound that needed to be lanced after 100 years, and it needed healing. So we had to begin that difficult task. Ladies and gentlemen, it wasn't easy. It was an evolutionary process. I want to say to all of you, my gratitude to you for continuing this process. Years ago, when Kennedy was assassinated, and there was a book called The Torch is Passed, I am 92 years old. I would like to say that I am passing this torch on to the rest of you. <laughs> and I would like to quote a part of my philosophy that I learned years ago. Lord, help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer will be for others. Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live for thee. Thank you for continuing the reconciliation process.
Our Lord bless us to understand the things that endure. Good deeds are best in your sight as rewards and best as the foundation for hope. Allow our hope to keep us on the path of trust and great expectation as we come closer together as a human family in our original identity, the human being. Our Lord, grant us. I come to you as humbly as I know how, representing and acknowledging the first people of this land. Celebrating diversity. Almighty God, through your Holy Spirit, you created unity in the midst of diversity. We acknowledge that human diversity is an expression of your manifold love for your creation. We confess that in our brokenness as human beings, we turn diversity into a source of alienation, injustice, oppression, and wounding. Empower us to recognize and celebrate differences as your great gift to the human family. Enable us to be the architects of understanding, of respect and love. Oh God, you created all people. Thank you for your unity prayers, Abdul Sharif and Sister Ashley from our Islamic family and from our Native American family as well. Now we're going to ask that Pastor Kojo will come and introduce our speaker, followed by a musical selection by Mrs. Marva Robinson. And then the moment that we've been waiting for our speaker Dr. Benjamin Chavis, president of the National Newspaper Publishers Association. Pastor Kojo. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It gives me great pleasure to introduce this gentleman who I've known now for the last 51 years. Dr. Chavis is a very, very, very vibrant and very extensive individual. He first got into the civil rights movement when he was just a young lad in Oxford, North Carolina. And at the, as a teenager, he was asked to take over the, all of the youth in the state of North Carolina by um, Dr. I want to say Dr. Martin Luther King, but, by, <laughs> but also by Golden Finch as, as well. And he, from leading the children, the youth in the state of North Carolina for the NAACP for a period of time, he was then asked to join the North Carolina Virginia Commission for Racial Justice. And he became the state youth coordinator and director, working with young people across the state, the two states of Virginia and North Carolina. And it was the North Carolina Virginia Commission for Racial Justice that brought him to Wilmington in 1971 to work with the students who were having a problem boycotting the school. And that was an episode that we'll never forget. He's currently the president and CEO of the National Newspaper Publishers Association, which is the black newspapers in America. And there's right now over 141 black newspapers on in this country. He's also the chairman of the National Association of Equal Opportunity for Higher Education, which is NAFEO for the chairman. And he's also the chairman of the Energy Action Alliance. Ben was the youngest 
person ever given the job as executive director and CEO of the NAACP in 1993. He was only 45 years old. And that was a, a big, big promotion for him, but it was also evidence of his ability, his history, and the things he was capable of doing. Dr. Chavis' career has began in North Carolina as a youth coordinator, as I said, but then Ben was also an ordained minister. He was an ordained minister by the United Church of Christ, and as an ordained minister, he decided to work with the children here in Wilmington. And in 1971, along with the BYBBC and yours truly, he founded, we founded together the African, excuse me, the African Historical Temple of the Black Messiah on Castle Street, which stayed up there for about up until about a year or two ago when they tore it down. He's a very outstanding individual. He's done a lot of work in this community. He's done a lot of work around the world. He's visited all over the world. He's been a part of many organizations. But the most important thing to me is he's been my best friend for the last 51 years. He's my best friend in the civil rights movement. And he's been an icon as well as a light in the, in the United States in terms of our black leadership, because he's never given up, he's never stopped, and he continues to fight, not for himself, but the benefit for African-Americans and the benefit for all people in this country. After the song by Sister Marva, the next person you will hear will be the voice of none other than Dr. Benjamin F. Chavis, um, par excellence.
I come tonight on behalf of the Wilmington 10. I come tonight back to Wilmington, North Carolina. From 1971 to 2021, that's 50 years. A lot has happened. On the program, it says I'm to give the keynote address. I feel like preaching. So I'm going to combine the two. And I have my watch on. I'm not going to keep you long. But I feel a sense of obligation to, first of all, thank all the planners of the observances and acknowledgments of 123 years since November the 10th, 1898. What happened here? 123 years ago had never happened before in America. What happened here 123 years ago was attempted on January the 6th this year. But it didn't happen. It was attempted. It has only happened one place in America, Wilmington, North Carolina. When I came here in February of 1971, I had heard about what had happened on November the 10th, 1898, but I really didn't know the details, Dr. Berth. I didn't know how deep the wounds were. When I crossed that bridge, coming across the Cape Fear River, I didn't know about all of the bones of our people who are still in the river right now. And I'm so thankful that you've chose as your overall theme of this 123rd anniversary, healing forward. Now, I'm known to stir up a crowd. That's part of my history. Because sometimes we need to be stirred up. Sometimes we need to be awakened. Sometimes we need to be challenged, chastised. But when Sister Linda told me that the theme was going to be healing forward, I said to myself, you know, if Wilmington, North Carolina can have a healing, maybe America can have a healing. This unity service tonight reflects not just the past, but it reflects the present. And we pray to God that it reflects the future. Unity. We're black, we're white, we're Latino, we're Asian, we're native people, we're God's people. A reporter, Dr. Terry, asked me while I was in prison, 
a religious reporter from uh, the Charlotte Observer asked me, uh, Pastor Henry, what is your learning after serving time unjustly in the North Carolina prison system as a member of the Wilmington Tent? I wrote her a 21-page letter back, and I said that I was in McCain Prison at that time. They moved into five different prisons during the 1970s. And I was honest, because I think in life, whatever you face, you ought to be honest. You ought to be truthful. So even though I was locked up and didn't like the fact that the Wilmington 10, my co-defendants, who were much younger than me, except Mrs. Shepard, were suffering in prison unjustly, only because we were trying to get black students to have an equal quality education in this city. And still, even today, I'm told, we still have issues. We still have disparities. We still have discriminations. But I wrote back to Mary Bishop, that was her name, the journalist from the Charlotte Observer. I said, my greatest learning while I've been incarcerated unjustly in North Carolina prison system as a member of the Winter 10, my greatest learning was I now affirm the oneness of humanity. She was shocked. I didn't have any expressions of anger or bitterness. Dr. King used to teach us in SCLC, bitterness only distorts the beholder. When somebody does you wrong, don't you do wrong back. If somebody hates you, don't you hate back. Now, that doesn't mean you let people mess over you. You do have to stand up and protect yourself and protect your rights. And so to me, healing forward means that we all should learn from the past. We can't live in the past. Some, some, there are some brothers and sisters in our community and some people in America trying to live in the past. In fact, they just dwell in the Civil War. Some folks want to substitute the American flag with the Confederate flag. In 2021. So in order to lean forward and heal forward and march forward, we got to talk about what should bring us together and not what should divide us. So being an ordained preacher, I had to go take a scripture on this subject. It's from Proverbs 12 chapter, 18 verse in the New King James, well, actually, in the New Revised Standard Version. It reads, Rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now, 
This proverb tells us that our words matter. What we say, Mr. Mayor, matters. Because what we say often determines what we do. And so, prior to 1898 and 1886, there was an election. Blacks and whites worked together, got elected in this city. Wilmington was the largest city in America, largest city in North Carolina. It was a thriving metropolis in the late 1800s. Blacks and whites, not just working together, but building together, thriving together. Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. And so the party of Lincoln became the party of liberation. So most of the blacks here in Wilmington at that time, they were also Republicans. Fusion politics. I don't know what has happened to the Republican Party now. Lord have mercy. Somebody's called Joe's flipped the script. But for these young brothers and sisters, I'm so glad tonight is intergenerational, Linda. We got young people in here, we got middle-aged people in here. We got elders in here, and that's the way it should be. But the scripture says that harsh words, rash words, hateful words, discriminatory words, oppressive words, repressive words, hurt, harm, destroy, deny, negate. Disabled. Now, I don't presume to be, the scripture says, the tongue of wisdom. Now, I know the press is in here, so don't get that twisted. I'm just saying that I'm 73 years old, been in the movement for 60 years. I've learned a little something that I want to share with you. First, I want to say that Wilmington, North Carolina, should not be the emblem of the past. All right. Wilmington, North Carolina should be the emblem of the future if we learn from the past. If we learn from the past. I was so proud today when I got to that uh, airport to see all these police officers. I mean, Lord knows. I I would rather be escorted by the police than chased by the police. It was a great feeling. And then I see a black police chief in Wilmington, North Carolina. A black police chief in Wilmington, North Carolina. I mean, we could just we could end the program tonight. And Police Chief Williamson is a native of this city.
family has deep roots in this city. And the city manager, mayor, whoever made the decision, you made the right decision. And I'm not just talking about his race. I'm talking about his character. I'm talking about his integrity. I'm talking about the words he used. Words matter. And he shared a vision with his officers. And I just want to tell you, Chief, I was uh, not nervous. I mean, these plain clothes and uniform officers surrounded me. I said, oh, man, I feel good in women's. And then we had a reception. And we had a little time to private talk. And I don't want to let everything out, Chief, but in our private discussion, he handed me a little envelope. Because on December... 12th, I think it was, in 1971, I was arrested. The police said I didn't have my registration card in my glove compartment. It was in the trunk of the car. So I got arrested and spent the night in jail. Seven nights, actually. So the chief said, look, you may want to have this. I've been trying to get my mug shot for 50 years. So I finally got my mug shot. Thank you, Chief. The point I'm trying to make is that, you know, I work with the National Newspaper Publishers Association. I work with the Black Press of America. And photos matter, as well as words. And what the captions are. And I'm so proud that of the 230 African-American-owned newspapers uh, that we represent, that one of our most foremost historic newspapers is the Wilmington Journal. The Wilmington Journal. And the publisher, Mary, uh, Mary Gervais Thatch, is in the hospital right now. Y'all pray for Mary Alice. And I also want you to pray that we keep that Wilmington Journal alive. Don't let that paper go down. Now, there's a relationship between the Wilmington Journal and the Daily Record. I'm so glad to see the family of Alex Manley, that heroic publisher of the Daily Record. And on November the 10th, 1898, the first building that was destroyed was the Daily Record. Because the people of oppression, the people of racism wanted to make sure that the Daily Record didn't print any more words, didn't print any more thing to inform people about what was going on in this metropolis, this, this striving uh, by a multiracial, uh, interracial metropolis called Wilmington, the port city. You would have thought that people would have rushed to Wilmington to celebrate Wilmington rather than to rush to Wilmington to overthrow Wilmington. So they not only burned down 
the newspaper. They slaughtered untold numbers. And even some of the mainstream press said, well, 25 were killed. We know that's not true. It's probably hundreds. And so I'm so thankful that we're still studying and digging for the truth. But we're also recognizing that we got to heal. We got to work together. And what I wrote to that journalist in Charlotte Observer from my prison cell, it wasn't just loose writing. As I look at all of you in here tonight, I'm seeing one human family. I'm seeing one family. I'm seeing one city. You know, and I, I think there are forces at play right now in America. Some want an inclusive democracy. Others want an exclusive democracy. And of course, there are some that want democracy at all. I remember when Kojo and I founded the first African congregation of the Black Messiah. On, first, we were on 11th Street at BYBBC. Then we moved to Castle Street. And I knew it was going to upset people because Tell the truth, Reverend, we, we painted the building black and we put a red, black, and green cross on top. And then we dared to we dared to intimate that Jesus Christ was black. We were, we were studying the scriptures. I, I couldn't be caught in a suit and tie. I wore a dashiki. Kojo, uh, Roger Curry changed his name to Kojo. Benjamin Chavis, I changed my name to Yusufu Shakazulu. You know, we, we just knew we were African. And then later, I got a chance to go to Africa. And my African brothers said, hey, man, if you want to help us in Africa, change America. Go back and change America. And so I've learned something over the last 50 years. I've learned something over the last 60 years. And I'm just not going to keep you long. I just want to say three things to you. Our future is so enormous if we would just learn from the past, apply those learning in the present, and work together, not just to envision the future, but to make the future happen. And I think in this commission that was established around eight, uh, 1898, I think that's what you've done. May I believe that Wilmington is a better city because we finally decided that we're not only going to study the past, but learn from the past, and then we decided we're going to live a different kind of future, a better future. And to me, that's, that's so important. Again, that last speaker was Dr. Benjamin Chavis. If you listen to the introduction of this season, season three, just a few episodes prior to this one, the name Chavis might sound familiar to you. 
That's because in the introduction, while noting the differences and similarities of North Carolina's Black communities and Black leaders, I introduced you to a man named John Chavis. He was a free African-American preacher and teacher who fought in the Revolutionary War. In 1808, before the end of American slavery, John Chavis opened a school in Raleigh, North Carolina, teaching white children by day and Black children at night. In fact, prominent white families are believed to have sent their children to study under Chavis, including Charles Manley, a North Carolina governor, as well as Archibald E. and John L. Henderson, sons of Chief Justice Henderson. Well, John Chavis is actually the great-great-grandfather of Dr. Benjamin Chavis, whose speech you just listened to. John Chavis is considered to be the first Black graduate of Princeton University because he graduated from a New Jersey seminary or a religious school that later became Princeton University. If you're unfamiliar with Dr. Benjamin Chavis or John Chavis, I encourage you to read about their histories and biographies. Their entire family actually has a really intriguing past. Now, while I visited Wilmington to commemorate the 123rd anniversary of the Wilmington Massacre, I also took a tour on a bus run by Wilmington native and entrepreneur Cedric Harrison. Now, Harrison just launched his business, Wilmington in Color, which shares the stories of African-American achievements and legacy in the city of Wilmington. I interviewed Harrison about some of the highlights on his tour, as well as his own experiences living in Wilmington. To Cedric, we met each other when I went to Wilmington, and that was the week of November 10th, which was the anniversary of the 1898 Wilmington Massacre, Insurrection, Coup d'etat, what have you. You are a native of Wilmington, North Carolina. Your family, I believe, at least some of your family is from Wilmington. Why don't you just tell me what your background in Wilmington is? Yes, I'm a Wilmington native, born and raised, man. Yeah, my family moved here from New York in the 70s. My grandma was originally here, but then she left during the 60s to New York and then came back in the 70s. And my mom had me here and I've been here until I graduated high school. Then I went out to University of North Carolina at Pembroke. And then from there, I went to D.C. and Atlanta. So your grandmother, was she born in Wilmington or born in North Carolina? Yeah, my grandma was born in North Carolina. Uh-huh. Okay. And when did you first learn about the 1898 Wilmington insurrection? When I really learned about the 1898 insurrection was when I was in college at UNC Pembroke. I was a broadcasting major, and I was coming across some interviews that ended up actually later on being some clips of the documentary Wilmington on Fire created by filmmaker Chris Everett. And I actually ended up reaching out to him like, man, I'm an intern, broadcasting major at Pembroke. And I saw some clips. One of the reasons why it made me gravitate towards it was one of the clips was from like Dr. Umar Johnson. And I was like, what in the world? He's talking about Wilmington for, you know what I mean? And then it made me dive a little bit deeper. And then my actual history professor that I ended up taking history for like three times, 
until I found the right professor, I feel like. And he started to engage with me about Wilmington's Black history when he found out I was from Wilmington, because um, where my college is is about an hour and a half from Wilmington. I was looking at him like he was talking a different language because I really didn't know what he was talking about. And so, yeah, those two things, both were my first moments of, of really being brought to the light of 1898. And both of those moments happened when I was in college. Right. So you didn't even know about Wilmington when you were living here initially. Yeah, initially, yeah. You heard about Black people being thrown in the river, but you didn't really know where that came from. So you moved away, you went to college, and then you went to, I believe you said you went to D.C. to live, and then you went to Atlanta to live for several years as well. And then you moved back to Wilmington. What made you move back? Oh, just as I was able to really become thoroughly immersed around just the art and the excellence, I guess, to the journey of Black excellence. Living in D.C. and Atlanta, I had realized that I was taught wrong growing up around what that looks like and how it could be attained. And it really empowered me as I look around Atlanta. It's no secret that Atlanta is like the capital for Black excellence, it seems like. And definitely like, you know, Black entrepreneurship, Black creators, and the list goes on. And as I started to exist uh, uh, amongst that space there, I started to realize that it got to this point that it is now where people like myself can just freely move here and feel great to be a part of this Black thing that's going on in Atlanta. But ultimately, somebody had to make the sacrifices a long time ago to build the foundation and what makes it the Atlanta that it is today. I started to connect that dots with the thoughts of, you know, what if 1898 never happened in Wilmington and what would this city look like? And so I, I figured that instead of just trying to go with the, the flow in Atlanta, that I could use my time on this earth by actually more so establishing the foundation in my hometown. But I felt like it would take somebody like me to actually have to come back home and make the sacrifices to actually get it to the level of where you see Atlanta. But I'm sure I won't get to see the day where Wilmington looks like that. But 100 years from now, when it would be 200 years from the anniversary of 1898 or whatever, that, you know, Wilmington would be looked at a little bit differently. And it could be said that my efforts were some of the foundational efforts that got Wilmington to that place. When I was in Wilmington, you gave me a tour on your newly launched tour bus. You have a company called Wilmington in Color, where you do a tour of the Black history in and throughout Wilmington. I have to say, when I went to Wilmington, I was really surprised at how gentrified what had been the Black community for all these years was. So a lot of people who visit or even move into Wilmington today probably have no idea about a lot of the history that you talk about on your tour. So without giving the whole tour away, just kind of tell me about some of the influential folks in Wilmington. We know about the excellence that existed in Wilmington, but a lot of the names are not widely known. I mean, one of the first people that I, I feel like I have to say first is David Walker. You know, David Walker is a great example a lot of people that do know about David Walker may not know about his Wilmington ties, but he was born and raised in Wilmington as a free black, actually, during time where, you know, slavery was was definitely still alive, well and legal. But he actually ended up leaving Wilmington as a young boy once he saw 
a child have to beat his mother to death in a punishment. And he said, I can no longer be free in a city where I have to see my people suffering in chains. And ironically, he ended up moving to South Carolina after that. But he actually ended up being thoroughly immersed in the African Methodist Church when he moved to South Carolina. And that actually empowered him to join the abolitionist movement. And he moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And from there, he actually started to help runaway slaves find work up north and in Canada area. And then he ended up moving to Boston, Massachusetts, and ended up becoming a writer for the Freedom Journal created by Peter Williams. And during that time as a writer, he actually ended up writing one of the most important pieces of literature in the 18th century called the pamphlet. And pretty much it challenges slavery, it challenges racism, it challenges the way that whites used religion to block the mindset and make people feel like slavery was like morally okay. But then it also just challenged colonization and ignorance as a whole. And the actual document was so very important that if you were free and was a sailor and was black, you actually couldn't pull up to the docks of the state of Georgia because the Confederates and just whites there in that area would be very, very scared that you would actually have a copy of this document and this pamphlet on you. And they were afraid that it was actually encouraging Blacks and would get in the hands of slaves to inspire them to rebel. You can't say that they were wrong. They were definitely wrong for banning people. You can't say that they were wrong about inspiring slaves to rebel because a year later, the famous slave rebel led by Nat Turner happened. And they say he was directly inspired by this document in David Walker's journey. But another person that David Walker directly inspired was also Marcus Garvey as well. The organization that David Walker was a part of directly inspired and influenced Marcus Garvey and his thoughts. When I was in Wilmington, you told me this story about a man who was born into slavery. He was the son of a an, an enslaved woman and a white slave owner who, in a remarkable way, gained his freedom and then was able to help others gain their freedom. Can you tell me about that story? Yeah, that's the James Drawburn Sampson story. You look at Wilmington, North Carolina in Color, Part One, that's the activity book series that we released around Wilmington's African American history. It's actually the only actual house that we have listed. The rest of them are like churches and schools and businesses. But yeah, his house, the James Drawburn Sampson house on Walnut Street, which is the north side of Wilmington, where historically that's where the black community first resided at. He actually was born a mulatto and a son to a slave master. And, you know, his father, who was white, ended up teaching him carpentry, as he knew as well. And after he taught him, he actually freed him. And when he freed him, he also purchased him 10 enslaved people as well and told him, do for them as I've done for you. And James did just that. He ended up teaching these other individuals how to make money with their hands in carpentry and let them purchase their freedom. And because of that, James ended up becoming the richest Black man in antebellum North Carolina. And another small story that I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but it's the truth. When he let those people purchase their freedom, he also gave them his last name of Samson. So it may be some Samsons running around here that aren't actually Samsons. That's the James Drawburn Samson house. And that house still carried a historical torch as after James Drawburn Samson passed away, it actually was taken over by Dr. Daniel C. Rome, who was one of the of the Black doctors of Wilmington, and they ended up creating a Black community hospital right around the corner from that 
house. When I was in Wilmington, one of the commemorative events was to erect a marker in honor of the Reverend Alan Kirk. Can you tell me about him? Yeah, Dr. Reverend Alan Kirk was over what was called the Central Missionary Baptist Church during that time. He was actually able to escape and flee, and he's been recorded and documented to be in attendance and speaking at different events in the North, talking about 1898 with the Alexander Manley, who was over the Daily Record printing press. Dr. Kirk was able to financially support the Daily Record with Alexander Manley and some of his endeavors. And you mentioned Alexander Manley when you mentioned Dr. Reverend Alan Kirk. So for folks who don't know who he is, he's really central to the insurrection. Can you just tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, Alexander Manley was another mulatto. His father was the governor at one point, and he was white, clearly, because Alexander Manley was very, very, very light-skinned. But anyways, when he was here in Wilmington, he ended up getting a printing press. With that printing press, he ended up creating the Daily Record, which was a daily Black-owned newspaper that actually ended up having more subscribers than the actual white leading newspaper and women's at that time, which was called the Morning Star. And it still exists today. It's currently it's called Star News. But the owner and founder of that during that time did not like Alexander Manley, not just because the Daily Record had more subscribers than the Morning Star, which didn't seem too ironic being that it was more African-Americans in Wilmington during that time than whites. However, it also had more white subscribers than the actual Morning Star did as well. So I think that that was something that they frowned upon. And then also it was a Republican Party voice paper during that time, as Blacks like to favor the Republican Party a lot more during that time. And yeah, he ended up causing a lot of friction in Wilmington during the months that led up before 1898. He was challenged by an article that was put out in the Morning Star, basically saying that they need to lynch a hundred Negroes to protect Southern womanhood and to stop black men from raping white women. And Alexander Manley responded back in, in the daily record saying that, you know, you see a black man with a white woman more than likely. I'm sure that is because they're both in love and she likes them and they have consent. And Wilmington was pretty filled with white racists. And if you weren't a white racist, um, they would be questioning why you weren't if you were white. And so a lot of folks that joined in the white angry mob, during the days of 1898, either were really, really about the cause or just too scared to help us stand up and do anything. And the angry mob, the first place they went to was the Daily Record and brought their Daily Record down to the ground. I mean, that place in Wilmington is still a vacant lot to this day. And a lot of people don't know that it wasn't just a standalone building, the printing press. It actually was the annex to the church, the Black church that it was beside. And it was called the Love and Chariot Hall Annex Building. And they actually moved there because this wasn't their first threat from white races in the town of Wilmington. This is actually like their third time moving. They tried to move more and more within the Black community to be protected. The day of November 10th, where they had moved to, still wasn't good enough. A lot of times when we talk about this history, we mention some of the women, but we know that women have kind of been overshadowed when it comes to their contribution, especially to the advancement of Black communities. So are there any women that stick out in your mind as community leaders that were really influential even before or even after the 1898 Wilmington insurrection in Wilmington, North Carolina? 
I mean, well, one that was directly influenced was Alexander Manley's wife, Sajwa. She came from a very prominent family and was very instrumental with Alexander Manley, as you could just imagine, as instrumental as Black women are now, you know, but then just from her own walk and her own journey, her own legacy, she was a singer for the Fifth Jubilee Singers, which was very historical as well. And she's been a lot of the documents that you actually read about 1898 and about Alexander Manley's legacy comes directly from his wife, Miss Sajwar. Her family itself has a pretty strong legacy and foundation. There's other many women that have accomplished great things in Wilmington, for example. The Delta Sigma Theta House is one example where the first actual loan that an African-American ever received for $50,000, that first loan was received by the Delta Sigma Theta so that they could actually take over the house. So they were the first African-Americans and the first females to receive that type of funding for ownership for a building that they actually still own to this day. And then also the great Althea Gibson used to walk around the streets of Wilmington and she actually graduated from Williston High School, which is the first all-Black accredited high school in North Carolina. And actually the Sajwars, one of their daughters also taught at that school as well. But yeah, Althea Gibson was the first African-American female to win a national championship in tennis. And so basically she was like the first Serena Williams and she was brought to Wilmington by a man by the name of Dr. Herbert Eaton. I mean, he actually built a whole tennis court in his backyard that she used to practice in and play in until she graduated high school um, and then went on to the pros. What made you decide to start Wilmington in Color? You have some other involvement in the community in terms of community leadership and also volunteerism. But what specifically made you start Wilmington in Color? Yeah, so about six years ago, I created an initiative called Support the Port Foundation, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. And we were doing random acts of kindness, and I kind of felt like we were putting a Band-Aid on some issues, and I wanted to really fully heal the scars. And as I just took a dive a little deeper into Wilmington and kind of where we're at today, I realized how much history plays a part in how we got to this point. And I realized a lot of people sometimes don't understand that. And it comes from that a lot of people just don't know the history. And so I started to try to figure out how could I create mediums to solve that issue. And the first medium that I ended up creating was a coloring book about the African-American history of Wilmington called Wilmington, North Carolina and Color. And then I ended up actually creating another book, a second edition. And between both of those copies, we ended up selling up to about 10,000 copies of that and from that success and from also winning a fellowship out of Forger applicants around the nation with Z Smith Reynolds Foundation, between those mentors and my journey and goal, we ended up creating a, a whole plan and project that ultimately the end goal is to make Wilmington a national attraction for African-American tourism. And we want to have a big cultural center that reflects that. And so that was phase three, the coloring books, I guess you can say was phase one. And phase two right now is the phase that we're in right now, which is the shuttle tour. And we're hoping to build momentum and raise funds with the shuttle tour so that we can actually establish a full length cultural center to highlight the African-American accomplishments and the tragedy here in Wilmington. So that's kind of where all of that inspiration and execution came in.
next episode, we're going to explore the events that led up to the 1898 Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat, along with the insurrection and coup itself. To all the listeners of this podcast, I need your help. It's really important that you rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. This really helps us boost our presence and get this information out to the masses. Your help in doing so will help keep this history alive and in the forefront of people's minds. I really appreciate you. And if you're always looking for interesting history podcasts like me, Check out Bohemian, which is a podcast about the history and culture of Czechia, a landlocked country in Central Europe, formerly known as Bohemia. Interestingly enough, it was actually once controlled by Nazi Germany, but it was restored in 1945 and then became an Eastern Bloc communist state following a coup d'etat in 1948, similar to Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm-hmm.